Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business that is pushing the boundaries of science to deliver new cancer medicines. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the role of bacteria in the development of colon cancer with Dr. Seth Herzon. Dr. Herzon is the Milton Harris 29 PhD professor of chemistry at Yale University. Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery at the Yale School of Medicine. So Seth, maybe you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do. So I was trained as an organic chemist and my laboratory focuses on making chemicals that are found in nature. Uh, These are typically chemicals that are produced by bacteria or plants. We try to recreate them in the laboratory uh, from scratch so that we can then study their properties. Okay. So so you find these chemicals in plants and in nature. What does that have to do with cancer? That's a great question. So a lot of these chemicals are actually evolved uh, to kill other cells. Uh, bacteria use them uh, to kill other bacteria. And uh, plants and other um, species will generate very complicated chemicals uh, almost as a defense mechanism. What we have found historically uh, as humans is that we can repurpose these chemicals and use them to kill cancer. And so that's one of the directions that my laboratory goes in. Ultimately, when we make these chemicals, we can then evaluate their cancer-killing properties. But I would think that when a plant makes some chemicals to kill off bacteria that might come and destroy itself... um, that that would be really different than a cancer. How do you figure out which chemicals you can repurpose into cancer-fighting properties, and how exactly do you do that? That is the entirety of my job. Uh, (laughs) That is a challenging uh, proposition. You're absolutely right. Um, In most cases, the molecules or the chemicals as they come directly from nature Um, are not, in fact, optimized uh, to kill cancer. Uh, We have to make changes to their structures, and that is often very difficult. We don't know, we don't always have a good idea of uh, what types of changes uh, we would like to make. It's almost as if we had, uh, you know, we were told to build an automobile but weren't given the specs, and we sort of had to guess as to what this automobile should ultimately look like and uh, be capable of doing. So how do you do that? Give me an example of how you do that. Because, you know, I'm just thinking about you've got a plant in nature. It makes a bunch of chemicals. And these chemicals have various properties to do various things. And you really want to repurpose it into a completely different job, maybe related Mm -hmm. in terms of fighting off an invader, but an entirely different job now in humans fighting cancer. And cancer itself is really complicated. I mean, not all cancers are the same. How do you go about doing that? Give us a glimpse of how that works in real life. Can you give us an example? Yeah, sure. It's a very interesting process. You know, 
historically, the way this has been done is that you'll actually have scientists uh, that will go out into the field, into various places. Uh, the lucky ones get to go scuba diving uh, in the Pacific or, uh, you know, hiking in some remote uh, uh, island. Um, and they collect samples and they bring those samples back to the lab. And essentially what they do is a process called activity-guided fractionation, where they basically start to see if these samples can kill cancer. And if they do, uh, they start to invest more time trying to figure out what chemicals are actually in the sample um, and what their structures uh, are. And so that is how it starts. And at that point, uh, it typically gets handed off to someone uh, like myself. And if we understand to some degree, even to just a small degree, how the compounds are killing cancer cells, that can give us an idea of what types of structural changes we need to make. So give us an example of a project that you're working on in your lab where you've kind of done that. So one of the molecules that we've worked on for a long time uh, in my group um, is produced by a bacteria that was actually found in a marine sponge um, in the ocean. And this molecule, a very complicated structure, uh, is a very potent uh, anti-cancer agent. Uh, it's one of the most potent anti-cancer compounds ever known. So at that very low concentrations, it will kill cancer cells. So one of the things that we've spent some time doing um, is taking this very complex structure and trying to separate off different parts of it uh, to get to something that's simpler and that will still kill cancer effectively. And, and we were able to do that uh, with this molecule. And we ultimately had much smaller, uh, we call them derivatives, much smaller simplified structures. They were easy to make um, and they were quite active against cancer. So why couldn't you just give this marine sponge to animals to eat um, to see if the animal could then fight off cancer? Like, why do you have to go through the whole rigmarole of finding the molecule, creating the derivatives, making the derivatives simple? Like, if they occur in nature, why can't we just consume that molecule as it is? Uh, people are trying to do that. You know, there's, um, there's an area of science looking at um, using bacteria um, well, certainly you've heard of probiotics. You take probiotics. These are bacteria that can make molecules and do things that are beneficial. Um, people are now starting to look at engineering bacteria uh, to make these types of molecules that can do, do other things, such as kill cancer. Um, but in this case, it would be very difficult to have uh, just taken those bacteria and fed them to someone. It's uh, difficult to get the bacteria to grow outside of their natural habitat. And so that's why we're really sort of stuck with um, sort of figuring out what they make and then trying to recreate it. And so, so I get the process of, okay, some marine biologist goes scuba diving, finds this marine sponge, brings it back to a lab, and lo and behold, finds that there's some property in what he brought back from the ocean that kills cancer cells potentially in a Petri dish. And then from there, you kind of figure out what molecule it is. But how do you go about figuring out, you know, how you're going to create that in a way that is not only something that you can manufacture, but something that is 
consumable, either edible or through an intravenous route, um, administrable, I don't even know if that's a word, but could be administered to humans. Um, and what cancers in particular it's going to fight? And then how do you actually get that to the point where it's a real-life medication? I mean, because when you start off saying this is the most potent anti-cancer thing on earth, I'm sure all of our listeners, including me, are kind of going, well, sign me up. I mean, that's the drug we want. And yet, do all drugs work for all cancers in all people? How do you get from the marine sponge to the clinic actually making a difference in people? It's a great question. That's arguably um, the harder end of the process. Uh, once we've identified the molecule, we know how it acts. We know how it kills cancer. Um, getting that compound to actually become a drug can be quite challenging. Um, there are a lot of resources uh, here at Yale and at the hospital to actually support those types of research efforts. Um, but to be honest, it's very difficult and it takes a long time. You have to worry about how these things will be administered, how stable are they, um, what types of cancers you will use them against. We can determine some of that ahead of time. Um, but once you go into people, things tend to get very complicated. <laughs> so how do you even get to the point where you've got something that could be administered to people? So in my lab, we'll try to develop a, um, what we call a synthesis, which is a way to create the compound. Um, we'll work out the synthesis such that we can make uh, hundreds of milligrams or gram quantities of the molecule. Uh, and then we work with people at the medical school to look at the activity of these molecules um, in different animal models. Obviously, you're not going to go right into a person uh, with a compound that's unproven. Uh, and so you start out with mice and sort of work your way up to more complicated models. Once you get to that point and it seems that it's working and it's not toxic, that's when you start to do uh, clinical trials. And so tell us more about the collaboration that you have with medical schools, because certainly on this show, we often have people from the medical school, from the clinical disciplines, all of whom work with patients. It's not often that we get somebody who's a chemist sure, uh, yeah. on this show, and yet you're having a real impact in terms of cancer management. So tell us about kind of that collaboration that you have with the medical school. How do you find collaborators? How do you develop those teams um, where scientists can work with doctors to actually do the work to get drugs to clinical trial? Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the things that's great about Yale is that, um, you know, I found, so I am in the chemistry department. I'm in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Um, but one of the things that I found over the last 12 years or so is that people at the medical school um, and around FAS as well are very open uh, to collaboration. Um, it's been very easy uh, to establish connections here. Sometimes it's simply just an email. Um, I actually had a collaborator at the med school. Uh, we published uh, two or three papers together before we even met in person. <laughs> we just sort of did everything remotely, but it worked just fine. And they were very nice papers. And we really sort of helped each other um, to advance our, our, our research uh, together. So it's been a very um, you know, productive environment uh, for, my, for my own research. And so how did, how did you find these these 
researchers in in the medical school because it seems to me that you're kind of in the middle, right? You're you're the person after the marine biologist goes out and finds this sponge in the ocean um, and says, gee, I think, look what I found. I think it might kill cancer. You're the guy in the middle who says, well, let me look at that and let me find out what compound it is and let me try and synthesize it and let me try and make it into a derivative um, such that it's actually usable. And then let me connect with somebody in the medical school who can test this in mice and maybe larger animals So uh, before it gets to the clinic. So you're, you're kind of in the middle. And so, um, so that's really a gray zone for a lot of people. Um, you know, I think a lot of our listeners would have heard about clinical trials, and maybe we can talk more about that in a minute. But a lot of people may not know how it is that 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 middle piece works. It's a mm-hmm. bit of a black box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's actually, it's an interesting sort of space to be in. Um, it's one of the reasons I really like chemistry. You know, chemistry truly is uh, the central science. Um, I've taken my research, you know, my research sort of faces more in a biomedical and uh, cancer-focused uh, direction, but um, uh, there are lots of other directions one can go as a chemist, looking at energy and the environment, um, uh, fuels, uh, things like that. Um, but um, for me, it's really sort of biomedical, and, and really it just comes down to engagement and trying to stay engaged with the people uh, at the medical school, um, trying to read broadly so that I can understand you know, what they're doing. Um, and then, yeah, not being able, not being afraid to basically just reach out and, and you know, uh, reach out for help and uh, see if they're interested in working together. Um, for me, the best sort of mental space to be in as a scientist is when I'm being mentally challenged and I'm not sure, quite sure what the next best thing to do is. And that's when I feel like I'm learning the most. So it sounds like it's a really interesting uh, kind of place to be. We want to take a short break for a medical minute, but maybe after the break, we'll talk more about how these drugs actually get into clinical trials and to the bedside and the impact that your research has had uh, in terms of colon cancer. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about breast cancer, the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis or 3D mammography is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Seth Herzon. We're talking about research and the role of bacteria in colon cancer, and right before the break, he was telling us about how 
In the chemistry department, he really is playing a role in terms of finding compounds that occur in nature that might actually have an impact in terms of cancer. So, Seth, tell us more about your recent work and the impact that that's having, particularly in colon cancer. Sure. So one of the projects really that's been arguably um, one of the most exciting projects in the last couple of years for us um, has been trying to understand um, how, well, if and how certain bacteria may cause colon cancer. So back in 2006, other researchers had discovered that people with colorectal cancer seem to have a particular type of bacteria in their colon. And it was thought at that time that the bacteria made a specific chemical that was actually causing their cancer. And so that was over a decade ago now. And since then, people have been trying to figure out what this chemical is. And as I told you in the first half of the show, uh, that is something that's frequently done. But in this case, it was very difficult to figure out uh, what this chemical was and how it might be causing cancer. So... How how did you go about doing that then? So it was uh, a highly interdisciplinary and collaborative project. Um, my colleague, Jason Crawford, had been working very hard to try and figure out how the bacteria actually make the molecule. Um, through those studies, he was able to deduce about half of the structure of the molecule. And so as a chemist, I said, okay, we can try and make that, and we'll try and study it in the laboratory. And so we set out to create the, uh, the chemical in the, in the laboratory. We had it in hand, and we indeed were able to show that this molecule um, is quite toxic, and it damages DNA. Um, DNA damage is one of the ways that people can get cancer. So it was its act, its behavior was consistent with this observation that had been made um, many years ago. But that was actually the easy part. So we had about half of the chemical, um, and then we sort of got stuck. We knew there was another half, um, but we were not able uh, to figure out uh, exactly what it was. And we got stuck for about two years, and uh, this time last year, um, we were really sort of weren't sure what to do next. Um, and one day, one of my students who was working on the project uh, came into my lab with some new data. And uh, we sat down with the data, and um, we had a lot of other knowledge uh, from Jason's work and, and the work of others. Um, and. Um, we worked through the data, and then with Jason's help, we were able to uh, propose uh, the structure of this chemical. Um, and it was a very exciting moment uh, for, for me and, and for the students, I think. It was, you know, there are a few times in science where you really feel um, uh, as excited, I think, as I did on, on that day. It was sort of like we had, uh, we were putting together the, uh, the puzzle, and we had the last couple pieces, and you know how you sort of rush to the end once you know where everything has to go, and we were putting those last pieces in, and then we could see the entire picture. Um, and once we had an idea then of what the chemical was, we literally spent about a month uh, trying to talk ourselves out of it, trying to find data that was inconsistent uh, with the uh, structure of that chemical, uh, and we couldn't. And so we were very excited about that, and uh, that led us to then recreate the molecule in the laboratory um, and show that it had uh, the same effect as the bacteria um, 
on uh, human cells. Okay, so wait a minute. Um, so, so you made half the molecule, and then you get stuck for two years, and then a student comes in with new data. What mm-hmm. new data? So, um, it's in, yes, it's a good question. She was working very hard to try and indirectly get at the, the rest of the structure. And what she had done, um, we knew that these molecules um, do what we call an alkylation on DNA, which is where the molecule actually becomes bonded, uh, stuck to DNA. And so we use that DNA essentially as a fish hook to catch the molecule. And she had samples of DNA with the molecule in it and was using a large number of um, uh, very sophisticated what we call mass spectrometry experiments to try and figure out the structure. And ultimately, uh, that day she came in my office, she had enough data that we could sit down and, and start to piece it together. Okay, so you figure out the molecular structure and you have your eureka moment and you're all very excited and happy that you figured out how to create this molecule and you find in your experiments that it actually does cause cancer. Mm-hmm. And then what? So for us, you know, this has been, um, that was really all, all, our goal all along as chemists was to figure out the molecule. But in terms of cancer therapy, it opens up a lot of doors because now that we know how the molecule behaves, we can think about ways to stop it um, from causing cancer. We also now have a good understanding of how the molecule is made by the bacteria. And so we can think about ways to stop the bacteria um, from making it. But perhaps probably the most practical and sort of useful kind of therapeutic um, uh, opportunity coming from all of this work will be in early detection. I think uh, it'll be very easy for doctors to um, bring patients into the office and determine whether or not they have these bacteria uh, in their colon. And if so, they can be monitored closely um, for any sort of cancer. Okay. But why can't they just take an antibiotic which kills off bacteria to kill that bacteria? You absolutely could. Um, But one needs to be very careful, you know, with antibiotics. Uh, They tend to wipe out, you know, you have lots of healthy bacteria, beneficial bacteria in your gut, and you don't want to be wiping them out. And certainly if you don't have these bacteria, you don't want to take antibiotics unless you absolutely need to. So, but if... If you have a way of telling whether somebody has these particular bacteria, because these bacteria that make this molecule are presumably bad bacteria that you don't want. Um, So is there a way to tell whether you have these bacteria versus other bacteria? Absolutely. Yeah. So you can get fecal samples from patients and then analyze the bacteria uh, in those samples and um, see if if they are... um, if they are present. Um, and one of the other things that we're working on is trying to develop um, antibacterials that will specifically kill these bacteria. That would really be the magic bullet for us if we could go in there, someone could take a pill and just wipe out these bacteria and leave the healthy ones um, unscathed. And that, that 
specific antibacterial does not exist at the moment. Is it that does. Right? It does not. No, but that is something that we are we are working on. And so, and then the other thing is, so now that you know how these bacteria make this molecule, whether or not you know how to kill off these bacteria, if you had a drug that could prevent these bacteria from making this molecule, then that would work too. Yep, 100%. That would be a, another therapeutic strategy. So, and you could do these strategies of either killing off this bacteria or killing off the process whereby the bacteria makes these molecules, even in healthy people. So it's potentially not even therapeutic, but really preventative. Yeah, a prophylactic, exactly. Uh, and that's something that we've thought about um, in terms of ad just, you know, administering this to people as a way to prevent any sort of cancer formation. So did you figure out, Seth, why this molecule creates cancer? So we figured out what we have determined is that the molecule um, damages DNA in the host. So the bacteria make the molecule and then it gets, it sort of swims out and gets taken up in your colon cells and starts to damage the DNA in those cells. And once you get low levels of DNA damage, that's how you can get tumor formation. Well, that's interesting. So I guess the other strategy is to figure out whether there's some sort of coding or some sort of mechanism that you could get the host cells to have such that it doesn't take up this molecule and or that this molecule isn't effective. Yeah, that's right. That would be another strategy that we could um, try to look at. And then the last point is you know, it's interesting that these bacteria make this molecule to kind of damage the host, potentially if the bacteria is in a place where it doesn't want to be, um, to kill off the host that it doesn't like necessarily. You know, DNA damage is one of these things that can cause cancer, but we often have chemotherapeutic agents which also cause DNA damage. It's just that they cause DNA damage in cancer cells. So is there a way to repurpose this molecule now that you know that this molecule causes DNA damage and reverse engineer it such that you cause DNA damage but in cancer cells? Yeah, I think um, you should come and do a postdoc in my lab. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, you're one step ahead of me. We are we that that is also something we are interested in, and so we're designing ways to essentially um, cage this molecule in such a way that it is uh, it will not damage DNA, um, but then converts into its DNA damaging form once it enters cancer cells. That is precisely what we are trying to do. We're trying to uh, reverse engineer it, as you put it, or repurpose it um, as a uh, chemotherapy. Because, I mean, especially if you could target it into particular cells, right? So you, you put on some sort of honing agent that it'll, like a virus, for example, mm -hmm. or some sort of or honing antibody. agent, yep. uh, that it will go to cancer cells and not normal cells, yep. and get yep. into those cells and destroy them. Yeah, Give we, cancer to a cancer. That's a cool idea. That's the idea. Yeah. So we actually, you know... Um, 
a lot of people use antibodies to target uh, specific molecules uh, to cancer cells or just to target cancer cells in general. Um, and we have a collaboration with a company in the UK um, that is interested in attaching this molecule um, to an antibody uh, so that we can specifically go in um, and kill uh, cancer. And so where are you now in terms of, you know, thinking about this molecule and all of the things that it can do? I mean, is it is it something that uh, you're still working on in the lab? Is this something that's getting into early stage clinical trials? Where are we with this? And, and is it only for colon cancer? Or have you started looking at, you know, kind of whether this molecule can be... Uh, uh, play a role either in the etiology and or the treatment of mm -hmm. other cancers? Sure. Yeah. So we still have a lot of work to do uh, as a short answer. Um, we're we, Now that we have, we know the structure and we have a way to create it. Um, now we can, for the first time, really study it uh, in detail. And so in sort of the coming months and years, I expect that we'll be looking at um, trying to understand exactly how it interacts with uh, the host DNA and leads to DNA damage, um, how those DNA uh, lesions um, might then be resolved. Cells have lots of ways to repair DNA damage, and um, that's something we want to um, understand. Um, and then, yeah, branching into these more sort of therapeutically oriented directions where we either try to repurpose the molecule as an anti-cancer or um, try and figure out ways uh, to stop the bacteria. Dr. Seth Herzon is the Milton Harris 29 PhD professor of chemistry at Yale University. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.